Good to see you tonight. We're going to get started. And we are in the book of Revelation this evening. And we're going to be there right after right after we pray and take up our offering and sing. But I want to warn you ahead of time. Um, you're going to be doing some traveling tonight. So hopefully you brought your, your Bible. Tonight will be one of those nights where your, uh, your electronic device, if you normally use that for, uh, for a Bible, you're probably not going to be able to keep up because we are going to fly over the first 20 chapters and see where we've been and set us up again for, for the great white throne, uh, throne judgment. So we're going to cover that. Um, this evening, I think you're really going to be edified just seeing it in the in the macro and uh, all all the places that we've uh, that we've already been, and then that's going to whet our appetite for where where God's going to uh, to take us. How kind it is of the Lord to have us swimming in the curse on Sunday morning in Ecclesiastes, pointing us to the new heaven and the new earth when He's going to remove the curse. And so uh, those two things together are, are going to be great. This coming uh, Sunday, uh, if Jesus doesn't come, uh, in Ecclesiastes is, is going to be the look around. And uh, we're going to, it's all about injustice. So read ahead. Um, I know when you, uh, if, if you're like me, when you start reading Ecclesiastes, you have to read it a couple times and kind of let it, uh, let it soak in. It will help you. If you read it ahead of time, and so uh, I think I was telling uh, Craig McCarty in the in the foyer out there, just just it's how ma- it's amazing, but uh, but not surprising how the Bible is is relevant to to every situation and every time. I mean, what's everybody talking about uh, in the culture right now? Uh, justice, social justice, climate justice, justice for frogs, justice for chickens at Chick Fil A, justice, justice, right? Well, Solomon is is going to talk about uh, injustice and give us wisdom in how to re- respond to that. So that's coming up um, this this Sunday. But tonight, um, the revelation of Jesus Christ, and I'm looking forward to it. So let's pray, and then we'll we'll uh, get moving. Father, we love you. We thank you that you love us, um, feeble and frail, and yet your children. You have have given us uh, the wisdom and uh, knowledge and joy. You've given good gifts for us to um, uh, to to rejoice in. After we come to the end of our search in Your Son, and we're completely satisfied in Him, totally secure and safe in uh, in Your good grip. And now, Father, we. Uh, we labor for you, we rest in you, and we enjoy your gifts. One of the gifts that you've given us uh, is time together as your body, singing and, uh, and, and worshiping and hearing your word. So would you bless us tonight as we do all those things. Bless our offering in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Farrell's first message on Ecclesiastes, he talked about how when we feel the emptiness of the curse, then you're in the place where hope can be found in Jesus. And so the songs tonight are going to focus our attention on Jesus being the friend of sinners, how he needs to fill our vision. And then when we turn our eyes upon Jesus, everything in this world goes strangely dim and the light of his glory 
and his grace. Let's be seated for this first song, His Forever. Jesus, friend of sinners, loved me ere I knew him, drew me with his cords of love, tightly bound me to him, round my heart still closely twined, the ties that none can sever, for I am his and he is mine. Jesus, friend of sinners, a crown of thorns you wore for me, bruised for my transgressions, pierced for my iniquities. The wrath of God that I deserved was poured out on the innocent. He took my place, my soul to save. Now I am His forever. Jesus, friend of sinners, I love to tell the story. Redeeming love has been my theme and will be when in glory. Not death, nor life, nor anything can ever separate me. Oh, love that will not let me go. Yes, I am His forever. Not death, nor life, nor anything can ever separate me. Oh, love that will not let me go. Yes, I am His forever. Amen. Not only is He belong to us forever, but He is our vision. Be Thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that Thou art. Is He your best thought by day or by night? Let's sing this together. Be Thou my vision. Oh, man. 
and turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Let's sing. Oh, soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and death into life everlasting. He passed and we follow him there. Over us sin no more hath dominion, for more than conquerors we are. Turn your eyes upon Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. His word shall not fail you. Verse 3. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying. His perfect salvation to Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely in the light of his glory and grace. Amen. You may be seated. As I said tonight, we're diving back into Revelation, and I know it's been a few months since we've been there, so we're going to jump back in by doing a flyover of what has happened so far. So the challenge tonight, we did this once before, about halfway through, the challenge tonight is going to be covering 20 chapters of Revelation in one evening and having you out of here before 7.15. Now, that's a challenge, isn't it? Well, that's what we're, we're going to aim at this evening. And I think that you're going to be very encouraged. At least I was as we, 
as I looked back and, and saw the, the big picture in a, in a macro. We're about to see the great white throne judgment at the end of Revelation 20. And that's going to close out the things that shall take place after. The things that are and the things that shall take place after. And what comes next is God's promise to make all things new. And that's what I'm looking forward to, aren't you? So I said how kind of God to save this last section of Revelation while we're, we're in Ecclesiastes. But Revelation itself, even if we didn't have Ecclesiastes, Revelation itself is, is fascinating. It, it's, it's even fascinating to unbelievers. They're interested in it. People want to know. They're preoccupied with knowing things uh, ahead of time. We look at the weather forecast so we can plan events. If you ever want to get under Sue Cook's skin, just tell her what the weather forecast is and, and whether we can do something or not, and she will let you know her feelings about the weather forecast. We, we want inside tips on stocks. We look at the polls to see which way the, the trends are going in political races, although they're not always indicative of the way the results turn out, are we? But for a believer, Revelation is it's like a taste of, of honey because we know the author and we know where we're, where we're headed. It's, it's a book of promises. It's, it's not just a book of, of obscure predictions. Most people who are interested in the future sadly search in vain. Just like this morning, there is a search that, that everybody engages in, but it, but it comes up empty. Most people who are interested in the future sadly search in vain. And as we heard from Ecclesiastes this morning, there's only one who, who has the grip of, of time and knows, knows everything. Isaiah reminds us of that in this way. Solomon, Ecclesiastes 3, we saw this morning, he, he shows us how God has the grip of time. This is the way Isaiah says it. Remember this and stand firm. Recall to your mind, you transgressors, remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. From the ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all of my purpose. From the end, the end from the, from the beginning, in the beginning from the end. He is the Alpha and He is the Omega. Genesis to Revelation declares to us exactly what God wants us to know and exactly what we need to know. And the book of Revelation is the, is the one source where God declares exactly what He will do in the future. So do you have a Bible? Are you ready? Then open to Revelation chapter 1 and follow, follow along. The entire Bible reveals God's redemptive plan, but the, but the book of Revelation is the, is the final chapter. And it unveils the future history of the world, the, the return of Christ and the setting up of His earthly kingdom. And then all of that ends in His eternal kingdom that will be in heaven. And in reality, Revelation is not the ending but the beginning of what awaits every human being. And John pours the foundation for this entire book. If you don't pour a good foundation, you don't pour good footers, then the house is going to fall down. Well, as John pours... 
an excellent foundation, and he will, uh, what he's getting ready to unfold, and he begins that in verse 1. Look at Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John pours the footers here for the entire book, and he begins with the title, What Will Be Revealed. That's in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. He tells us how it's going to be revealed. The transmission in verse 2, it it was communicated to him. And then there's a promised blessing of why we should study the book in verse 3. And from the very first verse, Revelation tells us about its contents. It's an unveiling. That's what the word revelation means, uh, or apocalypse. And it's a prophecy. It's a foretelling. All of that's in those first three verses. The revelation or apocalypsis of Jesus Christ concerning the things that must soon take place. That's prophecy. It's what becomes visible. Something that's revealed is what becomes visible. It's an unveiling or a disclosure of what is unseen. That word is used 18 times in the book of, of Revelation. And Revelation unveils, it makes visible the unseen things that are going on, in which the church is engaged in and what is promised for the church and, and also the world. It shows us what really is, is happening. So, so we know Revelation is not expert opinion. It's a divine disclosure, John says. It's what is taking place and what also will take place, and that's the, that's the prophecy part. And the word prophecy is found in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy. So that's the future. Prophecy simply means the foretelling of future events. Now, I know when you think of the word prophecy, you, you think of maybe uh, uh, you know, crazy dispensationalists with all the charts and those kinds of, of things, or you think of a psychic or a sophisticated prognosticator like Nostradamus. These people claim to be able to to see into the future, but they often speak riddles and they're shrouded in assertions of what may happen. You've probably probably read a fortune cookie, right? I mean, that's about as best, that's about the best they've got. Today you will meet a tall, dark stranger, um, and the rest of the day you're looking for somebody that looks like that. Eventually you find somebody because you end up finding what you're looking for. That's not what God means by, by prophecy. Prophecy of Revelation, the future, when, pro- when Revelation talks about the future, it's what must take place, what will take place, accurately declared beforehand. Now, Revelation is not the only place that prophecy is in the Bible, right? I mean, the Old Testament is, is full of prophecy that was fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. And now Jesus Christ himself is giving prophecy of what will be fulfilled in the future. Now, he, he, he accomplished the first things that he, that, that he promised to do, right? He did, right? You think he's going to accomplish the, the latter things that he's promised to do? You better believe that he is. So when you, when you think of Revelation, think of two things, an unveiling and a foretelling. It's a revealing and it's a declaring of what will take place. And the bonus application is it's not just the future, it's your future. It's 
It's our future. And that's why you must pay attention to the God who reveals. He knows the unseen. How's it going in the unseen parts of your life? If God can see the unseen future, don't you think He knows the unseen things of your life? He sure does. The hidden sin, the hurting heart. And if He can foretell the future and He knows what will come to pass, do you think He's powerful enough to change your future through Jesus Christ? He is. If He cares enough to reveal it beforehand, do you think He cares for you? You better believe He does. And He has given us a dependable message in this book so we can prepare for it. There's a reliable transmission. Verse 2 tells us how we received this book. An angel gave it to the bondservant John who testified to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Revelation has a divine author. It's God. He has a trustworthy source. It's His messenger. And it was given to His tested servant, John. Where's John whenever he gets this message? Is he just some fly-by-night guy that you don't know whether he's trustworthy or not? This man is on the Isle of Patmos exiled for his testimony of Jesus Christ. He's tested. That's who God gives this message to. And God presents how we got the book in a progression of reliability here. It's from God the Father given to Jesus Christ to show His servants the things that must soon take place. It's for us. So He made it known to His servant John, who's a proven faithful witness. And there's the promised benefit in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads, the one who hears, and then the one who heeds the book. There's a promised benefit in hearing and heeding the book of Revelation. And John ends this whole foundation, this whole footer, with for the time is near. He's coming soon. So pay attention. And after that intro, then God, uh, uh, John begins to build on that foundation. He begins to unfold the, unfold the book. This is the only slide that I'll put up for you tonight, and it's the big picture of Revelation. It's the, it's the macro. There's the things that are. That's what was written to the seven churches. It goes through the end of chapter 3. Revelation 1, after this foundation, the vision of Jesus Christ, then there's the seven letters, and that covers the first three chapters. That's the, the prologue. Then there's the things that are, the seven churches, the things that shall take place after. That's the bulk of Revelation. Chapter 4 through chapter 22. And we made it through the first 20. And then all things new. Chapter 21. The new Jerusalem, the new heaven, and the new earth. And then there's the very ending epilogue. The things that are, there's a vision that John sees of Jesus Christ. Look, if you would, at verse 4. John identifies the sender of the letter. He identifies the receiver of this letter, Revelation. He gives a greeting of grace and peace, and he tells us it's from the entire Trinity. Look at verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ. There's the, there's the Trinity, the sender of the letter. The receiver is the seven churches, grace and peace, and it's from the, from the Trinity. The message in the letter is not just for the seven churches. It's for us, all the churches, because it's the revelation of God in each church. 
was to hear a specific message to their assembly. I think we talked about this whenever we looked at the seven letters. What would it be like if Jesus Christ penned a specific letter to Timberlake Baptist Church, like wrote our name on the letter and had someone deliver it to us that actually exposed where we were spiritually and what God demanded of us, what He praised us for, and what He wanted to rebuke us for. That would be pretty serious. Well, that's exactly what the church at Ephesus got, Smyrna, and the, the rest of them. Before that, though, John sees a vision of Jesus Christ. The you word at verse 12. Here's the vision. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking... In verse 13, I saw one like the, like the Son of Man. And look at what John does when he sees this vision in verse 17. Look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a, like a dead man. John's response to the vision was overwhelming fear, was overcoming worship, and overflowing service. He falls at his feet as dead in verse 17. And then he rises and writes. Look at verse 19. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, the things which will take place after these things. And as instructed, John begins writing to the seven churches. Chapter 2. John writes a letter to Ephesus, the loveless church. That's Chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Then he writes to the church at Smyrna, the persecuted church, in verses 8 through 11. Then he writes to Pergamum, the compromising church. Then Thyatira, the the corrupt church. Then Sardis, the the dead church, the beginning of chapter 3. Then Philadelphia, the the faithful church, in chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And then the seventh letter that rounds it out, probably the most well-known, Laodicea, the lukewarm church that was neither hot nor cold, and so Jesus spews this church out of his mouth in Revelation three fourteen through 22. Chapter 4. Next, John sees a vision of the very throne room of God, and he sees the transfer of the title deed of the earth. I don't know what you consider... It's the most significant vision or prophecy or sight in the Bible. But I would say this one has to be in the top five. I mean, it is one of the most significant. Ezekiel gets a vision into heaven. He sees into heaven. Isaiah sees into heaven when he, when he says, he hears the, the, uh, the, the guardians around the throne say, Holy, holy, holy. What does John see whenever he looks into heaven? After he writes the seven letters, John gets a vision of the very throne room of God, and there are seven scenes that he sees here of the throne room. There's an open door in verse 1. After these things, I looked, behold, a door standing open in heaven. There was a throne and a king. Look at verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and he sees one sitting on the throne, the king sitting on the throne, one sitting on the on the throne. And then around the throne, there's a choir. There are 24 choir members. Look at verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting. Then John 
hears some lyricless music in verse 5. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. That's the background music in heaven. And then there's the spirit of the, of the churches at the end of verse 5. He sees some seven lamps, seven spirits of God. There are four worship leaders that he sees at the end of verse 6. Four living creatures full of eyes in the front and behind. And then there is a heavenly chorus with the background music of lightning and thunder. They're actually singing a song in heaven. What are they singing in heaven? Verse 11, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things because of your will they existed and were created. John sees the accessories in the throne room And he marvels, but then something catches his eye. What would catch your eye if you saw that vision? Well, here's what catches John's, Revelation chapter 5. It's the vision of Jesus Christ and the transfer of the title deed, creation's deed. John sees a sealed scroll in verse 1. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside on the back of the book. It was sealed up with seven seals. And then John hears a strong angel summons in verse 2. Look at verse 2. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. What's he saying? Who is worthy to open the book and break its, its seals? Then there's some proclamation from redeemed elders in verse 5. Look at verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Then there's the title deed transfer. John actually sees creation's title deed transferred from the Ancient of Days, from God the Father Himself to the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 6, And I saw between the throne the elders. In verse 7, And He came out and took the book out of the right hand of Him who's sitting on the throne. He sees one on the throne. He sees something in His hand. He sees someone take that from His hand. Then He sees the Lamb's worship by all creation. In verse 8, when he'd taken the book, when he'd taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down before the Lamb. And look at verse 9. And they sang a new song. There's a new song going to be sung in heaven now. And they're singing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and break its seals, for you were slain, and you purchased for God with your blood from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And they will reign upon the earth, an earthly kingdom that's coming. The scroll's important is, is clear. There's, there's seven seals. What do you do with something that you want, that you want to protect, that, that you want to declare is really important? You put, a, you put a seal on it. Your birth certificate probably has some, something em, em, emblazoned on it or stamped on it in some of this is seven. God from the throne takes up the scroll declaring its time. The angel requests the person come forward and present his credentials. And so the transfer can take place and the document be read. And the universe is silent. Verse 3, chapter 5. And no one in heaven or on the earth, or under the earth, was able to open the book, or the scroll, and look into it. None in heaven. 
No angels or saints, which would include Moses and all the prophets. They're in heaven. Adam doesn't step forward. Noah doesn't. Enoch, who walked with God, he's silent. Not even Abraham, the father of faith, he remains still. None on the earth. No one living steps up. Not any of the apostles, which were still living at this time. Not John himself. No king, no man, no woman, no boy, no girl. None under the earth. No one has, who has died steps forward. No one in Hades, no demon, not even Satan himself, nothing. There was, there was silence. But look at verse 5. That elder makes a proclamation. We didn't read what it was. We will now. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is able. <laughs> he is able. And then in the next 11 chapters... John records what happens when the one who took the scroll unfurls the scroll and breaks the seven seals. There are seven seals on what Jesus takes. He has the authority and the right to do that because of the cross. There are seven seals. And the seventh seal contains seven trumpets, seven announcements that bring something on the earth. And that's followed by seven bowls of, of wrath. And chapter 6 is the first seal. And then they increase with intensity. Look at Revelation chapter 6. How are we doing on time? 6.30, we're up to chapter 6. I think we'll make it. Look at chapter 6. Then I saw when the Lamb, who's breaking the seals? When the Lamb broke one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice, a voice as loud as thunder, come. And I looked and behold a white horse. There's a rider. And that rider is given authority. Look at the end of verse 2. He went out conquering and to conquer. With the second seal... There is conflict on the earth. War comes. Look at verse 3. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Another, there's a red horse. And he's going to take peace away from the earth. In verse 4, And men would slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. The third one brings famine. Look, if you would, at verse 6, after this third horse comes, this third seal, a quart of wheat for a denarii, and uh, three quarts of barley for, for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Famine's going to come. The fourth one brings death. Verse 7, when the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard a voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come, I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had a name, and his name was Death. And Hades, the grave, was following him. Fifth. The fifth seal, the martyred souls under the altar, crying, How long, O Lord? They cry out for vengeance. The sixth seal in verse 12 unleashes cataclysmic events that the world has never seen. Look at verse 12. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun became black, black as sackcloth, and the whole moon became like, like blood, and stars fell to the earth. As a fig tree casts its unripened figs when shaken by a great wind. Natural disasters where the sky goes black, just as Jesus foretold in 
Matthew 24. Chapter 7. Chapter 6, the seals broken. Chapter 7, Israel, God's people, are, are sealed. So there are seals that are broken, and then there's a people that, that's sealed. Chapter 7, John pauses before he tells us the seventh seal, and he sees two groups. Verses 1 through 8 of chapter 7, there's a group of Jewish witnesses that will be sealed on the earth. And they're going to be alive for the return of Christ. Look at verse 1 of Revelation 7. And after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or any tree. And I saw another angel descending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. Seals are broken, now the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice, loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth. And what does he say to those who were given the authority to harm the earth? Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their forehead. And I heard a number of those who were sealed, 144,000, not the Jehovah's Witness. Sealed, how do we know? Or right here. Sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, not the church. Every tribe of the sons of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, 12,000, and Reuben, and he, and he goes on and on. Well, there's a second group. Look, if you would, at verse 9. And after these things, John looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no man can count. These are Gentiles from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before God clothed in white robes, carrying palm branches in their hands. And they cry with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So you have a group of Jewish witnesses that are sealed, and you have an innumerable, innumerable group of martyrs in heaven that are going to be killed during the tribulation period from every tongue, tribe, and, and nation. And Revelation 8, as the hour of God's final judgment comes, awe fills heaven and fear fills the earth. And everyone is hushed by what they see on the scroll. Look at Revelation 8. And when the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Now, we've already seen, and we already talked about this when we went verse by verse, but we've already seen in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5, heaven is not silent. Heaven is not silent right now. There's singing, there's worship, there's praise, and there are prayers that are ascending into heaven. Your prayers are being heard. Believers' prayers all around the earth are being heard this, this very minute. Somebody's crying out for a loved one to be saved right now. Someone's asking God for mercy in a tragedy or a calamity that's happening. Heaven is not silent. But here, when the seventh seal, when the Lamb breaks the seventh seal, there is silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Why is there silence? Because seven angels with seven trumpets appear. Look at verse 2. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Well, what, what do you think about a trumpet? Well, in the Bible, it's, it's an announcement. It declares something. We're, we're listening for the trumpet. 
longing for Jesus to return. Well, these seven angels are given seven trumpets. There's the mingled incense of the saints, prayers in verse, verse 3. And then there's a lethal storm that's coming to the earth. Look at verse 5. Here's why there's silence. The angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar, and he hurled it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And then the seven angels, it's just a prelude. Now the seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared themselves to, to sound, brought them up to their mouths and began to pucker, took in a deep breath and got ready to blow. In Revelation 8, 7 through 20, the seven angels each blow their trumpets and they announce a new judgment. The first four trumpets are all directed at the earth, the ecosystem of the earth. Look at verse 7. They're sounded, the first one sounded his trumpet, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up at the end of verse 7. The second angel, verse 8, sounded, and a mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. Look at verse 10. A third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of, of water. The fourth trumpet, fourth angel sounded. And a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were, were struck. The verse four trumpets are all directed at the earth, the ecosystems of the earth. The last two involve demonic activity that the world has never, has never seen. In that day, in this day, God's going to decreate everything by His own hand. And following the judgment, He'll create a new heavens and a new earth that will last forever. And here's the divine destruction of the seven trumpets. One-third of the earth is burned, one-third of the earth is bloodied, one-third of it's embittered, one-third of it's blackened. And just like with the seals, there's a pause and then there are the final three that are, that are unleashed. Look, if you would, at verse 13 of chapter 8. Then I looked and heard an eagle flying in the midst of heaven with a loud voice. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. The remaining trumpets are yet to come, and they're far worse. As I said, the first two, number six, or five and six, involve satanic activity, and that's in verse nine. Here's the bottomless pit, the locust. Intense torment is coming. Look at verse two. After this angel sounds, he opened the bottomless pit. And smoke went up out of the pit and smoke like smoke from a great furnace. And the sun and the air was blackened. And what comes out? Out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth. And power was given to them as scorpions to have power. Demonic activity and the earth cries, wants to die, can't find any relief. And a third of the inhabitants of the earth die with the sixth trumpet. Look at verse 13 of chapter 9. Here's the sixth. The sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice 
from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound in the great river Euphrates. These are not good angels. Or at least they don't have good in... They don't bring good upon the earth. Look at verse 18. What's the result of the sixth trumpet? A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues. And now before God unleashes His full wrath in the bold judgments, He pauses again. I need a pause, don't you? It's a lot. Chapter 10 is the calm before the storm. This is the passage about the mighty angel and the little book where John's told to eat the book. And it, it's bitter and it's sweet. Look at verse 1 of Revelation 10. I saw another strong angel proclaiming or coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud. Look at verse 2. He held in his hand a little scroll, a little book which, which was open. Placed his right foot on the seat, his left foot on the land, and he cried with a loud voice. There's a thunderous message and a solemn oath. It's as when a, as when a lion roars in verse 3. And when he cried out, seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. And when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write what I heard. That's what John was told to do. And then he hears a voice from heaven saying, seal up these things. It's not time. For you to reveal them. And then John gets a strange command, another strange command. Don't write that. Look, if you would, at verse 8. Then a voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking to me, saying, Go and take the book which is open in the hand of the angel, which stands on the sea and the land. And so I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book, and he said, Take it and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter. But in your mouth it will taste sweet as honey. And John does that very thing. And that book has a, has a strange, there's a strange command, and then there's an urgent commission. Look at verse 11. After he does exactly what the angel says, verse 11 says, And they said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and, and kings. Has John already prophesied? He has. That's the reason he's in, he's in Revelation. He's there for the witness. The angel says, you must prophesy again. You must warn again. Many peoples and nations and tongues and kings, you must warn them about the bitter judgment that's coming because it's so horrible. Revelation 11 sets the final scene in the drama. Revelation 11, there's the two witnesses. John sees the future temple that will be rebuilt, rebuilt in the time of tribulation, spoken of in Ezekiel. He sees two witnesses that will proclaim God's message until the Antichrist takes the place, his place in the second half of the tribulation period. And after he sees these two witnesses, they're, they're, they're murdered. Look at verse 7, chapter 11. When they finish their testimony, the beast comes up out of the abyss to make war with them and overcomes them and he kills them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. When John sees these two witnesses murdered, the whole world rejoices and celebrates. And that celebration is very short-lived because the two heralds are resurrected before their very eyes. 
and they're called up into heaven. And there will be no, no mercy. Look at verse 11. And after the three and a half days, after the three and a half days that they're dead, the breath of life of God from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon all who are, who are watching. There might be a, a lot of uh, yippy dogs out there right now, a lot of scoffers. One day their mouths will be stopped. Here's one of those places. And they're taken up into heaven. Look at verse 12. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. And there will be no more mercy. Look at verse 14. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. The scene ends with these ominous words. The second woe is past. The third woe is coming quickly. And John sees a peculiar sight telling us all about that in Revelation chapter 12. This is the woman, the child, and the dragon. There's John sees a sign of a shining woman who gives birth to a king, and they're both pursued by, by a red dragon. That's Satan. And then there's going to be a great conflict. There's the symbol of the woman with child. Look at verse 1 of Revelation 12. A great sign in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. And she was with child. And look at verse 3. And then another sign appeared in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon. And look at verse 5. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, Jesus Christ himself. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne in heaven. Verse 7, if there's a war in heaven between Michael and the dragon. And then there's protection of the persecuted woman. Look at verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Salvation and power and the kingdom of God, kingdom of our God and authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser has thrown down the brethren. And the dragon was thrown down to the earth in verse 13. He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the child. In verse 14, two wings of a great eagle were given to the woman so she could fly away. Satan has conducted a long war against God, against his people. And the final climax is here. Chapter 13 shows the details of what happens in the second half of the tribulation period. Are you, are you weary yet? Are you tired yet? You having a hard time keeping up? Good. You ought to try preaching it. It's pretty tough too. Chapter 13 shows the details of what happens in the second half of the tribulation period. It reveals the rise of the Antichrist and his, who is governmental authority and his apostate church who, who helps deceive the world's population. Verses 1 through 10 of Revelation 13. There's the blasphemous beast of the... Of the world's structure. Look at verse 1 of chapter 13. The dragon stood on the sand of the seashore, a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten, uh, ten horns and seven heads. Great authority was given to him. Verse 11, I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. There are two. 
One is the world structure that the Antichrist will control, and then there's a religious system that he'll also control, and both target believers who are converted during the tribulation period. And the Antichrist identifies them by marking his own followers. We, we talked about this whenever we were preaching this chapter. Satan marks his own. The Bible says we have a seal. It's the seal of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that a wonderful thing? But Satan also marks his own. I think probably one of the most obvious is the Hindus. They put a mark before their forehead. Well, here in Revelation, there's going to be another kind of mark. It's going to be the mark of the beast, and that's how Satan's going to identify his followers. And during the tribulation period, there will be a world leader who will rise, and he'll be empowered by Satan, and the whole world's going to follow him. And he'll bring an unbelieving world together under one rule, blaspheming God, attacking his, his followers. And he's going to have the backing of a counterfeit religion who deceives the world, causes its people to worship the world leader. Will that be the Catholic Church? Will that be Islam? I don't know. It'll probably be an amalgam of all of them. Whatever it will be, whoever it will be, they'll be fueled by, by Satan. Revelation 14 reveals the victory of the Lamb and pronouncement of judgment. Before it happens, here's a little prelude. Jesus wins, Revelation 14. Revelation 14 is not in chronological order, but it contains a, a series of future proclamations, hope-building promises that haven't taken yet place yet, but will very soon. Good Verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him, 144,000, having his name and the name of his father on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters and the sounds of loud thunder. And the voice that I heard was like the sound of, of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne, before the living creatures. And look at verse 6. I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth. So there's a scene in heaven, and then there's a scene on the earth. Every nation, every tongue, every tribe. And the angel has a, a gospel message. And he talks about Babylon falling in verse 8, and then he pronounces judgment. The lamb and his followers are introduced in verses 1 through 5. The angel makes a proclamation in verses 6 through 13. And then there's the coming judgment of the Son of Man. Look at verse 14, Revelation 14, 14. And then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like the Son of Man. Does he have the scroll in his hand? Having a golden crown on his head. What's in his hand? A sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the, the earth is ripe. And he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. How long is it going to take God to do what he needs to do? He's going to swing his sickle, and the whole earth is going to be reaped. Chapter 15, John sees a final vision of these seven great angels. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. 
I saw another sign in heaven, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last of them. The wrath of God is, is finished. Chapter 15 is kind of like a movie trailer of a really bad horror movie. Only this is no movie. Chapter 15 short. It's a prelude. And chapter 16, the bowl judgments are actually being poured out on the earth. Chapter 16, there's the first bowl. The bowls come in rapid fire without any relief. Verse 1 of chapter 16, I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And the first one's poured out rapid fire. Each bowl gets stronger and stronger until the seventh finishes with finishes the wrath. And they're the final plagues that are called forth by the seventh trumpet. And they conclude the seventh seal, the scroll that Jesus Christ is opening. And at the end of these plagues, the Lamb will be able to read the full scroll and declare the, the future of the earth. What John sees next in chapter 17 and chapter 18 is the fall of the world system. So think of it this way. The seals are being broken. When, when he gets to the seventh, there, there are seven trumpets that, that bring about judgments. And then there's these seven bowls that are in the, the, seventh, the seventh trumpet. And, and you've seen that in macro. Now chapter 17 and 18 is going to zoom in and show you the detail of how the, the world system is going to fall and how the religious system is going to fall. While this judgment is going on, what's happening on the earth specifically in these, in these props that Satan has set up in order to, to come against God's people. These two chapters show a system, a religious Babylon and a commercial Babylon. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came with me saying, Come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. And we know her name. Look at verse 5. On her forehead, name was written, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. This is, this is the, the source of all of the, of the false religions that are there. This is religious Babylon. Chapter 18 is commercial Babylon. They both have the same master and the same end. The same master is the beast. And the participants are the kings of the earth and the people. Chapter 17, the destruction of the spiritual side. Chapter 18, the destruction of the, the economic and the geopolitical kingdom. And now, with all of the armies of the world gathered... After the seventh bowl, everything is ready for the coming of Christ as king and the final battle. And while you have been hearing the pronunciation or a pronouncement of woe, woe, woe on the earth, there are four hallelujahs in heaven before Jesus comes. Woe on the earth and hallelujah in heaven. Chapter 19. John hears from four groups in heaven before 
the battle on the earth. Look at chapter 19. After the things I heard, something like the sound of a great multitude in heaven. What were they saying? Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to God because His judgments are true and righteous. For He has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth for her immorality. There's a hallelujah for God's deliverance. There's a second hallelujah in verse 3. A hallelujah for God's destruction of evil. Hallelujah, her smoke rises forever and ever. There's a third hallelujah at the end of verse 4. Amen, hallelujah. Hallelujah for God's divine rule. And then there's hallelujah for God's devotion to His church. If you would, at the end of verse 6. Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. The four hallelujahs in heaven end with hallelujah because Christ is devoted to His church. And then John describes the king's arrival. What will it be like whenever Jesus returns? What John tells us in verse 11 And I saw heaven opened. He describes the king's arrival. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. John describes his announcement. John describes his apparel. John describes his army, and he describes his his action. He's called Faithful and True in verse 11. He's come to wage war. Look at what he's come to do. In righteousness he judges and wages war. And what does he look like in verse 12? His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name. He has three names. One is unknown, one's the Word of God, and the other you know well. King of kings and, and Lord of lords. And he wages war, and he defeats his enemies. And he brings about his promised kingdom. Chapter 19 ends with a climax of the day of the Lord, also called the battle of Armageddon. Look at verse 17 of Revelation 19. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds, Come assemble. For what? The great supper of God. What are you going to be eating? Verse 18. So you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both men slave and free, small and great. Verse 19, and I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and the armies assembled. What are they assembled to do? To make war against him who sat on the horse and against his, his army. Do they win? No. The beast is seized along with the false prophet. Two are the three members of the unholy trinity. The Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown in the lake of fire, never to get out again. And this chapter ends with the Lord having executed His judgment on the, on the armies of the earth. Verse 21, And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of Him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. In Revelation 20 introduces the millennial kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ 
What comes after the destruction of God's enemies? Well, chapter 19 tells us, or uh, chapter 20, I should say, tells us two major events. First, Satan is bound. And second, Christ's kingdom reign comes with the saints. Look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent, who is the devil, and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss. And then look at verse 4. What's coming after that? I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was given to them. Who are these individuals? Well, you know who they are. From verse 4. Verse 4. The, toward the end. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and not received his mark on his forehead or on their hand, and they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is one who has part in the first resurrection because over these the Second death has no power. We're getting ready to see this, the second resurrection that's going to bring them to the great white throne judgment. The first resurrection brings all the saints to their own thrones reigning with Christ. The second resurrection brings the dead before the great white throne where God will, will judge them. Look at the end of verse 6. Over, the, over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and will reign with Him a thousand years. John reveals the kingdom. It's chronology. God's character in it. He fulfills His promises. God's covenants. And all that points to an earthly kingdom where Christ shall reign. And finally, finally, after the kingdom, Revelation 20, Verse 7 through 10, there's the final rebellion. Verse 7 is the emancipation of the dragon. When a thousand years was completed, Satan will be released from his prison. And he'll come out to deceive the nations. Satan's released. He gathers an army. Not much of a fight this time. Verse 9 is the engulfing of that army. Verse 9, they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And verse 10 is the eternal end of the devil. Praise God. Won't that be a wonderful day? And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be forever tormented day and night, Forever and ever. And verse 11, which is where we left off, And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, both small and great, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened which is the book of life. 
and the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. And then death and Hades was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of of fire. Um, You want to be born twice. You don't want to die twice. And you want your name in that book, don't you? How do you get your name in that book? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, the Bible says. What's coming next is even more amazing, and that's what we'll look at next time. Phew! Thank you, Pastor. My clock says 7.08. We might even get out of here a little bit early. That's amazing. Now, if God cares enough to reveal that much detail, with that much clarity... And preserve it even until this day. Do you think He cares about you? You better believe He does. He cares so much, He wants you to know His Son before this day comes. And He also wants you to share the message of His Son with others. Because this day is coming for all men. Whether they're ready or whether they're not. How did John start the the whole book? The time is near. It's nearer today than it was before. And I don't know when it will be, but I know it's happening. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight. We thank you for your word. A lot to digest, a lot to cover, but we've been through it all. Just standing back, seeing it all in macro, this... How you reveal yourself to John, he gets a vision, he writes to the churches then, and he sees the vision, and, and then just methodically you, you unfurl the scroll, you pour out your judgment, you come, you set up your kingdom, and all of that points to the one day of a new heaven and a new earth. We marvel. Who are we, Lord, to receive such grace, such salvation? Let us not squander it. Um, help us to live for you. Be ready for your coming, not be ashamed whenever you come, and help us to tell others about the greatest gift ever given, the Lord Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. care when hardship comes, when difficulty comes, when, 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 when people oppress us in, in their violent or difficult or just ways that satisfy them and, and, and are all done in a way to hurt us. You know this story about 
my mallow cup is just a, a simple story of growing up, right? We learn these lessons growing up. But, boy, if we're honest with ourselves, we go through things all the time in our life where there's just a bitter taste left in our mouth from what we experience in what we see or what we experience out in that world. And it hurts. It happens to us as believing adults. Is God really good and does he care? Perhaps some of you are experiencing some kind of like disconnect like this today where we see what God says is true in his word, but then I go out and I witness something different. I experience something different. So these injustices that are around us and we're left with that bitter taste. Walking with Christ is not as enjoyable as it used to be. In fact, for for some of us, if we've tasted that bitter taste, it may, may just feel quite miserable. That feeling of being shafted by certain individuals or, or difficult circumstances that we certainly didn't ask for. And today what I want you to do is turn to Psalm 73. Turn to Psalm 73, where we're going to see the Psalm of Asaph, where his look at the world left a very bitter taste in his mouth. And we'll see how God, in his working in various ways, rescues this cynic. The song of a rescued cynic, Asaph. Asaph, a psalmist who has a cynical attitude when he heard that God is good and saw something very different in the world around him. We're going to read this in a moment, but as we do, we're going to see that Asaph in First Chronicles and other places in the Old Testament, he is a worship leader uh, in the temple. He, uh, he leads the choir, he sings, he plays various instruments. So this is his song. And there's various, this is one of the wisdom songs, but there are a number of psalms he wrote or, or penned in uh, the Old Testament record, Psalm 73 through 83 and Psalm 50 as well. And as we read this, I want you to see the endearing nature of the psalm. We'll be reminded anew as we read through this of why we go to the psalms when we hurt. We need the balm of God. We need the salve of God. We need God's working in our life. We need a place where someone else understands me, where I'm coming from. Is there someone else that has walked this same path as me? And how did they respond? How do they pray to God? How did they see God through this. And we're going to see that in Psalm 73. It's a, with, with, with Asaph as the um, author, I want you to see his humble transparency. As one writer called him, uh, they call uh, Asaph an, an ancient friend who understands. It's not a lesson, as we'll see, that's taught from an ivory tower. It's not taught as one that, hey, I, I figured it all out, now just do what I, what I say. No, it's someone that experienced difficulties like we do. And he almost lost his faith. And we see him recover in a way that it's just really a work of God in his life. And don't we all need this, this work of God in our lives? Look at Psalm 73 with me. Follow with me. I'm going to read all 28 verses, okay, because we're going to cover this whole thing today. And let's see how God would use us in our hearts this morning. Psalm 73, 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, 
to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So, the song of a rescued cynic. What we're going to do is just basically walk right through this. Let's hear Asaph's story. And when we do, the first thing we're going to see is there's clarity about God's goodness. Look over there again at verse 1. He makes a declaration about the truth about God. And really, this, this verse ends up being a summary of his conclusion of the whole matter after he had gone through this journey. And he says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Asaph makes a clear and truthful statement about God's character. That's a great place to start, isn't it? Knowing who God is. If you want to properly interpret things, if you want to properly see life, if you want to really understand reality, if you really want to properly get a hold of your feelings that may betray you, yea, they often betray you, get a clear view of God. And here he states a very clear statement. God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. What is the final standard for determining what is good? And that standard is God himself. There is no higher standard of goodness than God's own character. The scriptures declare this truth in a number of places, don't they? I mean, we'll just look at a few of them right here. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. No one is good except God alone. 
And of course, if God is truly good, He will bestow good upon us, His children, right? You are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. He's not only good in His nature, but He does good. I liked how uh, Wayne Grudem put this in his Systematic Theology book. Okay, Systematic Theology books aren't just for theologians, guys. So I'm, I'm not one of those. But, uh, boy, when you go in there, you can get some rich doctrine, right? And this topic of uh, this attribute of the, the, the goodness of God, just really, it's not just God's good, I and mean, then he's all these other things. He's good, and it shows up in many of his character traits, many of his attributes, okay? You see that in God's mercy, right? Why? His goodness toward those in distress. He shows goodness towards those in distress by his merciful nature. God's grace is his goodness towards those who deserve only punishment, right? That's grace. I don't deserve this, but God gives me the opposite. He gives me good things, even though I deserve only judgment. God's patience is his goodness towards those who continue to sin over a period of time. He has long of nose. He has, as the scriptures say, forbearing with us. So Asaph declares here, God is good to Israel. He's good to his covenant people. He's made a promise. He has sworn to it, and therefore he could only do good. He has sworn to it. It's, it's in his nature, and he has sworn by his covenant to do that, and he will do it. He cannot act unjustly or unkindly to those who he's promised this. God's goodness cannot be debated. And this isn't this true of those of us in Christ. It's the same truth. This is not just an Old Testament truth. It's true for us as well. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's promised us his gracious, benevolent goodness. And therefore we can say with all our hearts in Psalm 23.6, Surely goodness and mercy... Mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And you'll see there, God is not just good to Israel, but those who are pure in heart. <clears throat> God is saying there is blessing for those that seek me with all their heart. Those that make me uh, the, uh, the, the love and the passion in the center of their lives. Those that seek after God in a pure heart. Those who worship him in spirit and truth. Those that love the Lord God with all your heart and your soul and your might. We see that throughout scriptures, right? Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Those who worship and seek after God who seek his righteousness first and not just getting caught up in the things of the world, not just a Christian in name only, but, but really seeking after the God who satisfies. Those who do not lift up their soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. God is good and he rewards those who seek him. What wonderful promises and a great place to start as Asaph shares his journey of the song of a rescued cynic. So let's continue as we see that God is good. We then see confusion from observation. Turn back there again in Psalm 73. And if you look at verses two and three, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. 
For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Charles Spurgeon states this at this point. Here begins the narrative of a great soul battle. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Rather than a secure footing that is promised to us in our walk with the Lord as we pursue Him and everything He gives us for life and godliness, for success, spiritual success as God defines it in the Christian life, he found himself in, with insecure footing, slipping, stumbling, falling away. Asaph was on the verge of following through these feelings that we're going to talk about in a moment that he was seeing from the observations around his, his response to the world around him. For all practical purposes, you could say he was tempted to abandon his faith, to walk away, to say this is a bunch of bunk. Asaph's theology told him God is good. But then he looked at the real world and he saw just something, a different way the world operated. There was a disconnect in his mind. And it says uh, he, there in verse 3, he was envious. That's a passioned discontentment. It's a discontentment, envy, that desperately wants what others have while disdaining those who have it. Did you, catch, did you catch that? We feel that emotion, that sinful emotion, that, that sinful attitude of envy all the time, don't we? Desperately wanting what someone else has while disdaining those very people that have it. And you see, let's see various things here. We want to walk through this. I was envious when I saw, and let's just go through here, What was it in Asaph's case that he saw that got him all tied up in the spiritual knot? What got him so envious? What got him to a place where he got to really question God's goodness and wondered, is it even worth it? Let's go through this together here. All right, we're just going to go through these quickly here. You'll see, first of all, in verse 4, perfect health and perfect bodies. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. Health, trouble-free, right? Fatness is talking about abundance, having plenty. They had all the food they desired as opposed to the the poor that are emaciated. Secondly, verse 5, they had carefree living while everyone else suffers. They are not in trouble as others are. They are stricken like the rest of mankind. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Carefree living. The problems uh, don't stick to them. Uh, It's like Teflon. It It just seems to slide away. You look there at verse 6 and you'll see their flaunting self in pride and they live to abuse others. So here he is again looking out at the culture around him, at the people around him, at the wicked, at the arrogant, and it just seems like they're flaunting themselves. He says they here, they had, like a necklace, they, they adorn themselves with pride, with arrogance for all to see. The violence covers them as a garment, it says. It's, it's, it's what they wear. It's how they operate. It's what they do. They take it with them wherever they go and they abuse abuse and roll over people for their benefit and to the demise of others. What else did he see that made him so envious? These these wicked, the others, the ones that weren't following God, they were outwardly prosperous and inwardly foolish. 
Their eyes swell out through fatness, it says, and their hearts overflow with follies. Uh, their eyes swell out. They're, just, they're gorged with abundant food. I don't know if you're a Star Wars fan, but when I, when I saw that, I thought of Jabba the Hutt, right? And just sitting there, and those bulging eyes, and just, you know, just fat, dumb, happy uh, with where they're at, and just, uh, just arrogant, pompous, looking down on everyone else. You're here for me. And, and, and just having that, that, that air of superiority about them and flaunting it for all to see. On the outside, you see this, this, this excessiveness. And then it says their hearts or the inside is filled with foolishness. They're, they're unteachable. They define wisdom on their own terms. They're complacent with sin. Can you just sense Asaph's heart just boiling as we go and we go and we go here? Look at verse 8. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. What do they do? They speak with intention of harming others. Their speech is vile and they use it to hurt others. Verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. They have insolent speech that's proclaimed everywhere for all to hear. They don't keep it to themselves. They have the Twitter account. They got Facebook uh, and Snapchat and everything else and they want to make sure you know what they feel about you. Verse 10, others exalt and affirm their wicked arrogance. It says, therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Interpreting this is, uh, you know, it could go one of two ways. Therefore, his people, are these God's people who are deceived and just start following along the crowd of what they see, the success of the wicked and, and, and leaving or being tempted to leave the faith and follow after them? Or this could be just the world just celebrating and cheering on what the wicked do. Either way, it accomplishes the same thing. The wicked want more to join them, and it has a, uh, a negative effect on those around them. Verse 11, they challenge God's knowledge and ability to do anything about it. Look what it says there. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? I mean, Asaph literally quotes these guys here, right? And, and what, they, what they have, and it's just the, the, the epitome of arrogance is shaking their fist at God. Does God really know what I'm doing? I seem to be getting away with it. Does he really care? Because I'm doing this and nothing seems to be happening to me. So there's this air of invincibility before a holy and righteous God to say, it doesn't matter what God has to say. And then in case you missed it, he puts a summary together. The wicked have the good life and are rewarded for their wickedness. Look what he says there. Behold, these are the wicked. Behold. Right? He just kind of like, here's my presentation, guys. <laughs> Behold, always at ease, they increase in riches. Asaph here, look at this list. I mean, Asaph is incredulous. He can't, he can't take it anymore. He's boiling over inside. He's, this is like a rant, right? I mean, what's in the heart proceeds out of the mouth, right? It proceeds. It just boils out. It's just like he's just spilling it out of his mouth on the table, right? In all its graphic ugliness. For all to see, for all to hear. It's like a dam broke loose. The envy was so strong. The bitterness was so deep. This is so detailed. You know, I just got to think, what was 
Did Asaph just kind of have like the stakeout, you know, where he's off in the corner and just kind of watching these guys? He's got his binoculars and, and uh, you know, he's got them bugged and he's listening to them and he's got them quoted and he's just, wow, it's like he's just put this all together. He put his report together in a three-ring binder and here you go. Behold the wicked, always at ease, always it increases in riches, shaking their fist at God. And it's just like, they're, they're, they seem so trouble-free. They don't seem to have problems like I have. What's, what's wrong here? Pastor Farrell has been teaching us in Ecclesiastes, and we'll hear it again today, about a saint living and observing a Genesis 3 world. And I've enjoyed how he's brought us and how Solomon has brought us to a point of understanding the dissatisfaction and how, how the world operates in a Genesis 3 case. In other words, uh, ever since sin entered the world, the world has not been right. And we try and, and try to pursue something good out of the world and can just never deliver, even though its appearance seems to be giving everything our hearts would desire. And when we fall in that same trap as Esav does, we would have to ask ourselves, do I have my own list of rants? What are the things I'm complaining about today? What are the things I'm just whining about? You know, are they under my breath or the things that are just coming out as I share uh, where there's just this simmering discontentment about where I'm at and where God has me now? And if we're not careful, it's so easy to be right here. This is why this is so relatable, right? We fall into the same trap where we forget the goodness and glory and greatness of God in our lives and that he's planned all things by his providence and for his good in our lives. Whether we perceive them as good or bad, we know it's God that's brought them into our lives. And yet we, we settle for these things of, boy, they don't suffer like I do. They don't have these rules that I have to follow. Uh, you know, why do I have to go through these things and they're not struggling at all, at least seemingly? I remember when I was a young college student on a secular campus. I was a new believer, and I remember even before I was a believer. And to be something or someone on the campus I was on, you had to be part of a fraternity, a fraternity or a sorority, and then you were somebody. And uh, the life of a frat person and a sorority person on my campus was just the party life. I mean, there was the animal houses all around. You know, these are these houses that are just falling apart. You've seen some of these campuses, right, where <laughs> it's, they're living in these places, but it just seems like even though they're in these, these places, it just seems like they're living the high life, right? I mean, just parties and no need to study, and they have all the girls they want and, and, uh, or in the sorority, all the guys they want, and it just uh, life just seems so trouble-free. It just seems so easy. It just seems like, ah. Oh, feel so envious, you know, and I, I, I look at that, and maybe you as well, when you, in, your, in, in, a, in your single days where you, you look at someone enjoying the privileges of marriage before they should, committing fornication, you know, getting involved in sexual immorality, and, and you look at all that, they just seem to be enjoying themselves, and here I am, I'm, I'm lonely, and, and I, I want somebody too, and, and I'm, I'm waiting for marriage, and I'm trying to do the right thing, Lord. But they have all these things, and they're enjoying them, and those are the things I want. And I don't. I'm lonely. I'm discouraged. Is this worth it? Why, why am I doing what I'm doing? This is the predicament Asaph was in. 
So we look at this and perhaps we think the same way. God, where are you? Why haven't you lifted a finger against these people? You know, a lightning bolt here or there would help. One author wrote it like this. Where is our sovereign, righteous God when the sex trafficker naps on his yacht? Right? We see that all the time. How can they get away with this? And they're so prideful about it. It's just so in your face. God, why do you just watch like a spectator when the wicked flourish? Why do you permit the wicked to have their way? Is there no justice? Is there no right and wrong? Why do the righteous struggle and the wicked prosper? Why don't you just deal with them? And this is MV's summary statement. Life just isn't fair. This is where Asaph found himself, in the mire of envy. And let's continue to see how he takes himself from this. He goes from the clarity about God's goodness to confusion from observation, now to a crisis of personal faith. Look there at verses uh, 13 through 15 to see what we're talking about. All in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocent. Uh, This vanity is an emptiness, a futility. He speaks of like a waving the white flag of surrender. He's basically saying, why should I try so hard to keep my heart pure? Why fight the good fight? Is there a good fight? Look at verse 14. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. All the thanks I get for all my efforts is trouble. I try and I try and what I get is more correction. And as he continues to lament and he continues to look through this really foggy lens in this unbiblical view of his circumstances, he says, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He, he realizes all his ranting will just lead astray others who hear him. Asaph was at a crossroads. He witnessed injustice and he was envious and jealous. What was at the core of what was going on here? I thought this author said things well. Tony Reinke says this, In all his doubting of God's wisdom, in his doubting of God's power, Asaph is pressed to ask the really hard, fundamental questions of his life. Why does Asaph say what he says? Why did he almost lose his footing? Why do we slip like Asaph? His answer is our answer as well, because I want something more than I want God. Being fully satisfied in God. We sang that song today where God, be my vision. We spoke about and just enjoyed hearing all of you just singing to be satisfied in Him alone. That's the, that's we realize that in truth, right, that that's really the only thing that ultimately satisfied when we're in that place, right? And this is what the psalmist needed to start recognizing in this crisis of personal faith. He started looking for the wrong things. Look what James says. You've heard this before, right? You've read this, James 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you? If you're feeling tied up in a knot today, if you feel that frustration, if you feel that antagonism towards others, 
uh, for getting in your way or that envy towards those that have everything when you don't? What's the cause of that? You desire and do not have? What is it? Isn't it not the passions that are at war within you? You covet, you cannot obtain. What? You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. Why? To spend it on your own passions. It's become all about me. When we're in that situation, we're in that predicament, we're in a place where ASAP's at, we're just in a very self-centered view of life and myself. And we've lost our true purpose and why God put us here in in the first place. And that's to praise and honor him. It's all about being satisfied in him. So how does ASAP get on the right track? Well, there's counsel that corrects. There's counsel that corrects. Look there at verse 16 and 17. Here's where we start to see Asaph's turning point. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to be a a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned therein. What did Asaph do? He went to the sanctuary. He went to the temple. He went to where God's people gathered to worship Almighty God. This is something that's just during, it appears to be just during Asaph's normal course of worship. And here he finds sufficient answer for the deep questions and his doubts. It was here that he discerned their end. Look at there, verses 18 through 20. He discerns the end of the wicked. Where once he had saw them as just getting away with things and living the good life, and he was filled with envy, he now after entering into the temple, saw that in verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places. I'm not in the slippery place. place. It's them. And not just a slippery place, but they will fall to ruin. Verse 19, how they are destroyed in the moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Asaph, who was spiritually slipping himself, now declares it's the wicked who are actually going to fall. God will right all wrongs. Really, it's quite possible. You heard this passage, uh, Exodus 34, 5 and 6. We've heard this before in our fellowship. The Lord passed before him and, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And now it starts becoming clear why are they getting away with this? Why, why can they flaunt and, 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 and why can they just sin, it seems, at will and, and not have any repercussions? And we, it's because of God's gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. But then realizing he will by no means clear the guilty. There will be judgment. It must be judged. God is righteous and holy. And there will be a day that, although today they take advantage of God's steadfast patience, His gracious, merciful patience, there will be a day when they will be judged and they will fall hard. Asaph corrected his thinking. Look at verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, It seemed like a wearisome task. I just couldn't figure it out. It was too much for me. It was too much for my brain to compute 
by myself. I was not able to discern and understand the charade that was going around him that seemed so appealing and what was everything but that. Asaph was deceived into turning a truth about God into a lie. Look, look even at verse, verse 21 and 22. My soul was embittered. I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. He became bitter. He, he allowed his feelings to come down so far that he had this, this bitterness to the point where he couldn't even think straight. He was ignorant like a beast where, where an animal can't think and reason properly like a man's designed to do in the image of God. A beast can't. They can't rationalize. They can't think clearly. And that's how he felt. I just feel like I can't understand this myself. And haven't we been there before ourselves? We allow our feelings and our emotions to run wild and we run with them. And we've convinced ourselves of what we believe is right. And we won't hear otherwise. The matter's closed and we're spiritually deaf to what is true. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, There is no possible growth in the Christian life unless we are ruthlessly honest with ourselves. Of all aspects of the Christian life, self-examination is perhaps the one most neglected duty. We must confront our feelings. We must confront our emotions. Gang, there's, there, is, there is things you are allowing to proceed in your heart today that must be stopped. It will ruin you. And whether it's jealousy, animosity, Anger, resentment, bitterness, lack of forgiveness, it will eat your lunch, guys. You must stop it in its tracks. You must address it. What does Psalm 43, 5 say? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil? David asks himself this question in Psalm 43, 5. He, 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 he interrogates himself. And then he says, hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. We must confront. Why? You have to take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. We must address that unbelieving heart. What was it that Asaph experienced in the sanctuary that got him in the right direction? It doesn't say here. But we can surmise what went on in the temple, right? Was he around prophets and wise men that spoke truth to him? Surely he was, as the law and things were being written, the teaching of the law, God's word being read, counsel around him. Were there sacrifices? Surely, in the temple, where he saw there must be a punishment for sin. The innocent animal must be slain. He saw a foreshadowing of the gospel. He saw justice at hand. He enjoyed fellowship and community with God's people. And if we think for a moment as a choir director and and singer and one who played instruments, he was surely playing and singing songs (laughs) that spoke of God's glory, that spoke of God's goodness. He was actually preaching truth to himself. It could be any number of these things. And I, I think of our fellowship today and just what you're doing today by being here. It does matter that you're here. You won't get the same thing streaming in your dry dorm room. <laughs> you know, so many of you guys had to journey in the rain today. You had to get out to your car. You had to 
you had to get out here, get back in the rain, and you're going to be back in there in a second. And, you know, there's, ah, what's the hassle? What's the use? What's, you know, why, why go through all this? And it's like, this is why our hearts need each other. I'm encouraged when I see you guys. I'm encouraged when I see you working through and struggling through various aspects of the Christian life. And, you know, I'm supposed to be the teacher to you and, and Clay and our other leaders, but, boy, oftentimes we're the ones receiving from you guys. We're here as a fellowship and a community of believers to encourage and, and to help us in our, in our walk of faith. What you see here in this passage here is taking care about this evil, unbelieving heart. But look at that next verse in verse 13 of Hebrews 3. Exhorting one another every day as long as it is called today. Fellowship of the saints. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You can't get that in a podcast, guys. It happens when we're here rubbing shoulders, sharing life together, sharing our struggles, having this transparent outlook as Asaph did, and then seeing reality for what it is. And finally, it ends in a great way. Confession that God realizes God's goodness again. He confesses. And while we just have a, a moment or, or two as we, as we look at these final verses here, but these are some of the most cherished verses in all of Scripture, right? As you look here, starting at verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You know, it was, it was Asaph that was, felt he was losing his grip with God, but then when he got a clear vision, he saw it was God that was actually holding him through it all. God is the one that has us in the palm of his hand, right? And we must hold on to these promises knowing it's God who is the author and perfect of our faith. And we turn to him to restore us and to get us right on track again spiritually with him. You guide me with your counsel. And boy, he received that in the temple, didn't he? You guide me. You will receive me. You'll, you'll, you'll see me through to the end. Who am I in heaven but you? Why was I lost in all the crumbs and the filth of this world? And just the seeming abundance that comes from arrogant, sinful living? Why was I chasing after in my mind the, 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 the pleasures of sin for a season? Oh, Lord, you are the one. You are the one I want. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. What do you say in verse 28? It is good for me to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I might tell of all your works. What did he do? He became satisfied in God again. He became satisfied. John Piper, in closing, will just say this. What is at stake in human emotion is the glory of God. If you don't delight in God, you dishonor God. And the more you're satisfied in him, the more he's glorified in you. It is no more optional for us to pursue gladness in God than it is for God to pursue glory in us. Guys, he wants to use you today. You've been redeemed. You've been bought for a purpose. When we are lost in ourselves and we are not satisfied in him, we are unusable. When we are so wrapped up in our way of life and defining truth for ourselves, and being wrapped up in our emotions, and being lost in envy, and finding that bitter, discontented feeling, we cannot pursue the glory of God in our lives. It's impossible. Are you glad in God today? Are you joyful in Him? 
Is he the song that just flows out of your mouth? If it isn't, you can make that right today. It's why we're here. We're not here where we make all things perfect before we come and then we come and present ourselves. We come here as Asaph did and say, Lord, here I am. I'm just like Asaph. I look at the world and I'm envious. Lord, change my heart. Help me to see things clearly. Help me to know your goodness, that you're good and faithful and just and right, and that you work all these things together for your good. Let's close.